Good morning, EBF. Happy New Year. I'm Job. Uh, if we haven't met, I've been around EBF for a while, was on staff. Hi, buddy. See you have fun in Children's Church. Uh, we, uh, yeah, I've been around. I was on staff for, with the youth ministry for a few years. Uh, my wife and I have been attending at EBF pretty much our entire marriage, I think like 13, 14 years, something like that. So um, we love this church. And the chance to come up and preach is always something I'm really excited about and nervous because it's something I want to be getting better at. Um, and it's also something, an experience that I find every time God teach me, teaches me something rather profound in the process of trying to prepare a sermon and communicate it and stuff. So I'm, I'm excited to be here. I get to preach through Jude uh, in the month of January. So for these first two weeks, you'll see me. Then we'll take a pause the third week to welcome a guest preacher. Um, and then I'll resume Jude and finish it up the last week in January. Um, yeah, which is, which is awesome. Um, and I also wonder if you could indulge in me. I just, I really want to seize this opportunity to, it's a new year, right? I'd like to pray for, for God's blessing for our church for this year. So I just want to start off uh, if you wouldn't mind praying with me, just asking God for blessing for us this year, um, because, because we can. All right? I'm going to pray. Father, we do. We ask for your blessing for us as a church. Lord, we ask for your help. We want to glorify you. We want to be a church that exalts your name. And we know that you have work for us to do, and there's work that you want to do in us. And Lord, we just want to ask that you would, you would be there with us and bless the ministries of EBF this year. We, are, we ask that our, yeah, our church would be one that honor, honors you and glorifies you. Um, and that people who need community and support would find it here at our church. Lord, we ask for your protection and for your provision over us. That you would give us what we need. That you would take care of us. That you would watch over us. We know you've promised that. And we, we count on that, Lord. I want to lift up those who are in leadership at EBF. God, would you give them um, a profound amount of energy and uh, vision and enthusiasm and passion for the work that they're going to carry out this year. Lord, I pray specifically for our elders, Kyle, Robbie, Kent, Ben, and Yohan. Lord, that you would lift them up and, and give them, provide for them. Lord, sustain them as they are leaders and serve our church. I also pray for the staff, Hannah, Rachel, Jeff, Danny, Ben, and Michelle. Lord, I lift up our apprentices, our deacons, our pastoral search committee, our missions committee, all the other uh, volunteers and leaders at EBF that are, are serving behind the scenes to make this a place that glorifies your name. God, would you sustain them and support them and help them along the way and make this a good year of ministry for them. Lord, we also ask that maybe this would be the year we get a new pastor. Would you provide that for us too? Maybe two. Uh, Lord, we want our leadership. We want to move forward. We want to see uh, opportunities open up for us as a church. And as we search, we know that that's one big need that we have. And we trust you are going to provide it in your own time. Like the song said, God, you have no rival. You have no equal. You are so good. You are so faithful. You are so just. And you are worthy of our trust. You are worthy of our sacrifice. You are worthy of our praise and worship. God, you are worthy of our obedience and our repentance too. Lord, you are worthy of our love and affection. You are worthy of our lives and everything else that we have to offer you, God.
And I want to pray for one more thing. God, would you bring revival to us? Lord, we pray for Evanston, for Skokie, for Wilmette, for Chicago, for all of our surrounding communities. Lord, would you make dry bones come alive? Would you make the lame walk, the blind see? God, would you make EBF a lighthouse for people who are searching for hope? We want to see people coming to our church, sitting in the seats, who have just put their faith in you for the first time. Lord, we want to see you intervene in the lives of those who need salvation in you. God, would you bring revival? And Lord, yeah, we surrender it all to you. We don't know what in our future. We don't know what lies ahead for day to day. But God, we know that you are with us. We know that you are our protector and our guide. That you are our comforter. And we trust you, Lord. We declare that now. We trust you for what lies ahead. We pray this in your name. And everyone who agrees would say, Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you for that. Do it. So... My wife and I, we are expecting our third child this spring. That's happening. Thank you. It's going to be a little boy. I'd be lying if I'd said I wasn't nervous and a bit anxious about the addition of going from two children to three. Uh, But there is one thing that I know I have going for me with this kid. He, and it is going to be he, we know that. He is going to be the youngest child in the family. He's going to stay that way, but he's going to be the youngest family, and I, I appreciate that. I feel like that establishes a bond for us because I was the youngest of three in my family, and I know that life. I know that experience. Do we have, can I ask for a show of hands, do we have, young, can you raise your hand if you were the youngest child in your family? Awesome. Yes. Good. We are in this, we're, I'm not alone. Good. I feel like there's just, there's so, so many experiences that I can attest to. It's sort of a love-hate relationship. There's a lot of things I loved about being the youngest child. I was definitely the favorite. Uh, I got away with way more stuff. You know, rules had loosened up significantly by the time I came around. Uh, and I could very easily, like, if it was my word against my siblings, mine won because I was the little one. So it, like, it worked out to my benefit, and I use that often enough. Um, but there were definitely some things that I didn't like so much about being the youngest child because I was gullible. I was taken advantage of, right? Halloween, come home, spread out the candy. And sure enough, like, there's those, I don't know if you, uh, growing up, like, there's always those houses that give out, it was like an orange wrapper or a black wrapper. It's like the cheapest candy and it tasted terrible, right? Like, there was always a bunch of those. And for some reason, like, I would eventually be talked into handing over my coveted Reese's Pieces and all those for just a massive pile of those black and orange candies because there was more of them. So why wouldn't I want to take that deal? That was something like an awesome deal. Until later, I realized what I had lost. Or... It would like, I'd, if I had a dollar, you could be sure my sister would come along with five nickels and be like, Job, listen, I got five of something and you got one. Don't you want five? Or maybe you can't handle five. But I, th- I think five is awesome. Of course five is awesome. I don't want five. That's great. So of course I'd make that trade. That sounded awesome to me, five versus one. I'd want 
No. So like, right, like, and there's so many times, and then, and then as we got wiser to it, sometimes I'd realize right away what just happened, or it'd be like a while before I clue in, and I get so mad. I get so angry with it. I, I just got, I hated that feeling of being tricked, of being like, you know, deceived and being taken advantage of. Like, I didn't like that then. I don't like it now. And I think like, when we talk about Jude, here's what I want to launch into. I think that Jude has written this letter knowing that feeling, that emotion that you feel when you've been taken advantage of, when somebody has duped you and you realize it. On a serious note, I think we can all relate to that feeling. When we've been tricked or lied to and convinced of somebody, somebody we trusted has used that trust to take advantage of, them, of us so they could gain something for themselves. And as we jump into Jude, I'm, I think that in this letter, the tone of the letter, and I'm going I'm to talk about this, that he is striking a tone where he's acknowledging that feeling that you have when you realize what just happened, that you've been, you've been duped, you've been tricked and deceived. And uh, yeah, and so I want to jump into that and start by making some observations about these first few verses. Starting with verse 1, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It's worth noting that he's a brother of James, the same James that wrote the, the letter from James in the Bible, right? And that James is a very prominent leader in the Jewish Christian community, uh, and also, James happens to be the brother of Jesus, which means Jude is the brother of Jesus too. He doesn't claim that in his letter, so he claims brother of James because he knows that claim is going to express authority and credibility for Jude. But he doesn't claim brother of Jesus because even though that would do the same thing, Jude's being cautious about the fact that he doesn't want to claim equality with Jesus because People abusing those kinds of claims, that kind of access to God to take advantage of people is something he's exactly about to speak out against. So he's being strategic just in that very first verse of saying, I'm brother of James, I have the authority, the credibility to speak to you now, and that's it. And I'm a servant of Jesus, we're in this together. Now, some more observations I want to make as we started this. Um, Jude does not name his recipients. He doesn't identify who the letter is being written to. We can figure it out, sort of, or guesstimate who is, who is the, the actual physical church that this letter was you know, sent to and arrived at. Surely it went somewhere. Uh, but he didn't name this, the recipients. And one thing that we can pretty safely guess from that is that Jude doesn't necessarily want to limit it to one specific group of people. He sees this as an issue that's broad, and he wants everybody to recognize that this is for them too. And he wants this to be, have the, at least the ability to be broadly ap applied. And, that, and then one more uh, observation here. The people that he addresses in the letter, throughout the letter, every time he says you, or often he'll say beloved, he has a tone of kindness, of mercy. When he's talking to the, the, the listener, to the, the reader, the recipient of this letter, it's with a tone of love and kindness. But then he also talks about they. 
these people. And he's talking about the false teachers, the people who've come into the church and taken advantage of them and lied to them and used them and spread a false gospel. And he talks about them with disdain, with the same amount of emotion, but negative. Like he's angry with them. And so there's an important distinction because he never addresses those false teachers directly. He never says, you false teachers need to repent. Jude's not writing this letter to the false teachers. He's writing this letter to the victims of the false teachers. That's important. I want to camp out on that because this is not a call to repentance. This is not a warning that, of impending doom. He's not spending time talking to the false teachers, trying to talk them out of their sin. He's not worrying about that. Right now, what he sees is victims, and those are the people that he wants to talk to. Those are the people that he wants to address. So I actually want to say here today that if you are here this morning and you have found yourself victimized, in one way or another, by leaders in the Christian community, by people who have positioned themselves in a posture of some sort of influence in the church, and they have used your trust and taken advantage of you, lied to you, abused you, hurt you, wounded you, uh, yeah, used you in some way so that they could get what they wanted for themselves— even if they don't necessarily fit the qualification, the criteria of a false teacher, which we're going to get into here in a minute, even if they don't fit that full criteria, I want to say that if that's you, if you found yourself that kind of victim, I believe that Jude has written this letter to you. And there's some important things that he wants you to hear in this. He wants you to know that he sees you, first of all. He wants to acknowledge what's happened. That he recognizes that anger of realizing you've been duped. He knows that feeling. And you know what? He's angry about it too. He's angry for you. He acknowledges what you've had to experience and walk through. And the pain that that has caused and the wounds that creates. And then he goes beyond that. He goes beyond just seeing it and acknowledging it. He's calling you to action from there. He's calling you to step out from those wounds and not dismissing them, but to step into being somebody who is active and able to begin contributing and, in his words, contending for the faith. He's calling you to be a fighter for the faith. And I'm excited to talk more about what that sounds like, what that looks like, being a contender for the faith. But Jude is calling us to live not as casualties of war, but as contenders for the faith. Now, I want to examine who these false teachers are. Let's look at verse 4. I'm going to read it. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I also want to cross-reference over to 2 Peter chapter 2, because 2 Peter also takes the idea of false teachers and builds on that and says a whole bunch more things, and he says some very similar things as he's identifying the false teachers too. So picking up in the middle of verse 10 in 2 Peter 2, 
It says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in the deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They, are, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. So I want to make some observations, some, uh, some conclusions about who these false teachers are, because that's really important for us to note. First off, they know what they're doing. Their actions are intentional. What they're doing is on purpose. They haven't, they're not just misguided, misunderstanding. What, they're not just reading the scriptures a little bit different from you and trying in good conscience or in good faith to obey scripture and just disagree with you. They know that they're lying about God. They know that they are perpetuating sin against the will of God. They have been warned and they know what they are doing. Also, they look and sound just like you and me. They're sneaky about it, right? Like they, they know how to adapt to fit in well with us. You can't just look at it and be like, you have a beard, therefore you must be a false teacher. No, that's not true because like, they are going to be good at assimilating to us it's not going to be obvious just by looking at somebody, right? Um, and also, they're not going to identify as a false teacher. They're not going to tell you. They're going to be honest about it. They're going to come, out, come right out with it. Um, and they are actively trying not to get caught, which means secrecy is their best friend, transparency, and accountability their enemy. That's a really helpful clue for us. That one really helps us understand because we can see that in leaders. We can see that in Christians when we see them trying to perpetuate sin and then trying to hide it in secrecy and trying to avoid accountability, trying to avoid allowing people to speak into their life, to know what's going on when they have secrets and they, and they won't let anybody in. That doesn't automatically make somebody a false teacher, but it helps us know that there are warning signs here. Something's wrong. They're being sneaky. They snuck into the church. And eventually their actions will expose their wickedness. Sin will get increasingly blatant. Their attempts to justify their ungodly behavior will require more and more ridiculous interpretations of Jesus' words. Um, and a good example that Jude gives is taking the doctrine of grace and saying that that somehow gives you permission to sin even more because you've been forgiven. Of course, God doesn't care anymore about what you do. He just wants you to be happy and to enjoy everything because he's already forgiven you. That's the doctrine of grace. Rather than a doctrine of grace that teaches you to obey, that we can, it's suggesting that we can be, it gives us permission to be less obedient and not more obedient to Christ. That kind of reasoning denies 
that Jesus isn't just our forgiver, but he is our, quote, Lord and Master, too. A false teacher is also likely going to be somebody that you want to be genuine and sincere in their faith. They may even be people that you have some reason to depend on or rely on. But they're not followers of Jesus. And they know it. Peter, he called them bold and willful. And in Jude, later on in Jude 19, it says, he calls them worldly people devoid of the Spirit. These false teachers are people who are liars. They are deceivers, and they know it. Their sin is being hidden, and it's not by accident. It's on purpose. The damage, the harm that they do, the people that they dupe, it's not in good faith. It's in bad faith. It's intentional. So what actually motivates a person to even be a false teacher? It talks about that too. They do it because of greed. They do it because of thirst for power or control over people. They do it because they want to indulge in the pleasure of sin without getting in trouble for it, without having to repent for it, without having to obey Christ, whereas they don't want to. They see an opportunity to gain something for themselves, and they accept the fact that it's going to do some damage in the way. But here's the thing. In making such a stark distinction of what is a false teacher, he also helps us to understand that we don't have license to accuse people of being false teachers just because of normal disagreement or conflict. By talking about them as explicitly as he does, Jude draws a line between a misguided or mistaken believer and an actual false teacher. It's entirely possible that you could still be hurt or wounded by somebody else's sin without them being a false teacher, without them knowing or planning or contriving a, you know, a way to do that. That we all are sinners. Like we all screw up and we all hurt each other. That's normal Christianity. False teaching is a different thing. False teaching is intentionally going out there and building lies and coercing people to affirm what you want, your own agenda. And we have to keep that in mind. We also need to keep in mind that the actions of false teachers do not represent the body of Christ. That the actions of those few evil people are not a representation, even if they have infiltrated the church. We can do what we can to protect ourselves, but they don't get to set the tone, the, the, the reputation of the church at large. They, they are not a representation of the body of Christ. If you have been hurt by a false teacher, you have not been hurt by the ter- church. And that's not absolving the church of responsibility, right? We all have a responsibility to protect ourselves and to protect each other. That's going to be something we're going to talk a lot about. But a false teacher is not a representation of the church at large. And then in Jude 5, uh, verses 5 through 7, he also lists some examples and starts talking about what's going to happen to these false teachers. They're going to be destroyed by... Uh, sorry, he... The Old Testament examples, he destroyed the unbelievers of Israel. The fallen angels were condemned to hell. Sodom and Gomorrah. These are all examples of ones that knew better, and they were warned, and they faithlessly and intentionally rejected the truth for their own indulgence and experienced the full force of God's wrath. 
God has contempt for these false teachers, and he's going to punish them. Any justice they experience in this life still won't compare to the justice that would be served to them on the day of judgment by God himself. God sees this. God knows what's going on. God is going to punish them. That should give us some faith in knowing that we don't, even if we don't get to see the justice that we would like here and now, it is going to happen. God is not letting that go. But still, this is not a warning to false teachers. This, is, this Jude is not writing to the false teachers. We're not telling the false teachers to repent. They know they're supposed to repent. This is to, the, to you. This is assurance. God sees what false teachers are doing. He knows their lives. He knows their damage. He's going to punish them because he is our protector. And any false teaching, any damage they do against us is damage against God too. And God will punish them for that. So Jude is calling us, or those who are victims of false teachings and attacks on their faith, out of their pain, out of their wounds, not by dismissing them, but by acknowledging their real and empowering those victims into actions to be contenders for the faith. Because we are not to live as casualties of war, but be contenders for the faith. Now, as we go on, as we continue through our series, next week we're going to talk about how this is not just an earthly battle. This is a spiritual warfare, and we're going to dive into that. Um, and I want to build a list of action steps, what a contender is going to do, what a contender for the faith, to give you an idea of some things that you can and should be doing to be the contender of faith that Jude wants you to be. And I'm going to start today with just two, two thing, items for our list, Okay. The first one is this. Trust the gospel. Trust the gospel. If you are hearing lies, if you're being told to question what is in the word, you can trust the Bible first and should. Trust that what's been passed on to you is true. That God has been carrying the gospel forward. It's not just been passed down through the hands of men. It's been overseen by God over the ages as well. And we don't always get it right we make mistakes along the way. But even in that, God is ministering to us. He has brought the gospel into your life. You can trust what he has promised you. Trust the gospel. Verse 3 says, For the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the gospel. And then number two, the second action step that I want to offer today is to face the offense and speak truth. Face the offense and speak truth. By that I mean, I believe it's on us to take the important step of bringing to light lies that are being told and damage that is being done when we see it. One of the hardest things to do can be to speak out about sin in the church. If false teaching is happening, it's going to be really hard and really painful to call it out. But it has to be done. I want to qualify this. I'm not speaking about anything specific. I may not be, I'm not the most in the know person EBF. I don't think there's any major false here. This isn't like a, oh, a reaction to something that I think is going on. None of that. But at the same time, I don't know. And if it isn't happened now, if it hasn't happened to us yet, there's a really good chance that at some point in our future, it's going to. And it's important for us to be aware and to know what to do. So we have to speak out. 
You have to find a safe and appropriate place to speak up and speak out about what you've seen and experienced. We have to be careful. We have to be cautious about how we have to talk about those things. But we have to find the safe place, the honest place, and, and say the hard things that we know are true. You have to speak truth against the lies. I mean, we're going to put up a slide here. I actually want to open a door for you, just in case. If you have seen something, if you have heard something, if you witnessed something that you believe is wrong, or, and I'll expand this, that if it's not just, we're not going to limit to just false teaching, but in general, if you have found yourself victimized by somebody in the Christian community who has lied to you, who has taken advantage of you, who has harmed you, and you need an opportunity to bring light to that, to start talking about it, to express that in a safe place. Sometimes we just need perspective. Sometimes we need to know what we're dealing with. If this is as bad as false teaching, if it's just bad teaching, or if I'm misunderstanding, or what. But regardless, you know how you feel, and if it ain't right, I suggest you find a safe place to start talking about it with somebody who can hear you, who can pray with you, who can advocate for you, who will stand with you. And so, and in case you don't have somebody in mind that could do that, we've put up two names. Rachel Varghese, who's our director for Women's Ministries at EBF, and Ben Mingrich, who's the chair of our uh, elder board. I would, I don't know what my word is worth, but I would personally vouch that these are some of the best, safest p- people you could ever bring sensitive information to. I trust them completely. I trust them to listen to you I trust them to pray with you, to hear you out, to respect you, and to stand with you. They're not professional therapists that I know of. They're not, they're not probably not going to be able to solve your problems or do everything, but I think they could probably help point you to some good resources. And if something's going on in EBF that needs to be known about, this is a good place to start. We're also going to have communion today. There's going to be people praying, uh, elders and volunteers praying, uh, available. And if that's a place to start for you, if you just want to come and ask somebody for prayer for this for you, this is a good place to start. We don't need to wait to apply God's word after we go home, and we can do it here this morning. So if you find yourself in a position needing to begin the conversation of expressing what you've experienced, we want to open that door and make sure you know that there's safe places here to EBF. I, know, I believe the list is far longer, far deeper of people who are safe at EBF to go to uh, and would be willing for you to come, and my, myself included, but I just want to make sure you had names and contact information of somebody you could reach out to. And I, wanna, I also want to offer an example um, this is, uh, there is uh, a girl named Rachel Denhollander who was a gymnast and was abused, uh, sexually abused by a doctor uh, who was a doctor for gymnasts. And having like dealt with this and, and had this secret, she eventually came to the point where she decided that she needed to tell somebody and she went public with this, thinking or not knowing that she wasn't the only victim of this guy, Larry Nassar, who's been very, you know, known for what he's done. And it wasn't until after she spoke out that hundreds more came, 
came along and also spoke out about how he had victimized them. And now he's in prison because of her and others who were integral into having him convicted. And I, I, say, I bring this up because afterwards, she's an she's outspoken believer, faithful to the gospel, and after the trial and conviction of Larry Nassar, she did an interview with US, uh, Christianity Today. And they talked a lot about faith and the challenge of speaking out about the truth when it hurt and when it was scary and the difficulty of having to bring that to light for her and even having to come up against the fear of being rejected or ignored by people within the Christian community and what that would do and having to face that reality. And, and she walks through this whole interview and says some really profound things, but at the very end is what really got me. The interviewer just says, it opens it up, says, is there anything else that you would want to say to our readers? And she, this is what she says. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not need your protection. It defies the gospel of Christ when we do not call out abuse and enable abuse in our own church. Jesus Christ does not need your protection. He needs your obedience. Obedience means that you pursue justice and you stand up for the oppressed and you stand up for the victimized and you tell the truth about the evil of sexual assault and the evil of covering it up. Second, obedience costs. It means that you will have to speak out against your own community. It will cost to stand up for the oppressed. It, and it should. If we're not speaking out when it costs, then it doesn't matter to us enough. I think that's relevant. As we think about false teachers and as we listen to a letter written to the victims of false teachers, that we recognize that one of the hardest things to do when that situation happens, that to step out of the pain, step out of the horror, the, the embarrassment, the frustration and the anger of being taken advantage of, of being lied to and being duped, and still stepping into being a contender for the faith. By trusting that the gospel is true, the gospel holds up, and by speaking truth against the lies. Jesus is not just our forgiver. He is our Lord and Master. He calls for our obedience. And when we reject obedience to Christ, when others reject obedience to Christ, they reject Christ. And often, in their quest to justify their actions, to gain power, control, to indulge in sin. They do it by infiltrating the church and deceiving believers so that they can get more for themselves. They wage war on the gospel, and it's the followers of Jesus that become casualties of war. But in Christ, the victory is won, and Jude calls us to not be casualties of war, but be contenders for the faith. Let me pray. Father, Psalm 120 says, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. God, we know that you are with us. You watch over us. And when we find ourselves under attack by the lies of those who seek their own gain, it is not just us who's being harmed and being attacked, but you as well. But we know that you are stronger you have no rival. You have no equal. Your word holds true and it always will. 
So we pray that you would strengthen our hearts, teach us to hide your word in our hearts and trust your gospel, and to have the, give us the courage to speak the truth when we see lies. You are our forgiver, our provider, our rescuer, and you are our Lord and master too. We pray this in your name. Amen.